Welcome to Screen Talk and Newwire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, joined by Ann Thompson as always, and we've got plenty to discuss from Dune getting the green light, which obviously we can't avoid, to, of course, the tragedy of, of the shooting on the Rust production set. But before we do that, we really need to talk about documentaries because we had news about documentaries last week we wanted to get into, but we had all this other stuff to talk about. Now we got more news about documentaries. So let's get into it. First of all, we've got IDA awards. So what do the IDA awards mean in terms of the state of uh, what we're seeing as a fairly competitive season for documentaries, perhaps even more than last year? Well, what's weird about this year is that there's still some leftover pandemic stuff so that some of the earlier festivals in the year were virtual and they didn't build up the kind of buzz, even though Sundance is still the most influential uh, by far um, uh, festival for launching uh, usually a bunch of Oscar contenders. This time, uh, they're breaking in the fall, and they're breaking now. They're going to regional festivals now. And so there's a, a kind of a, um, a weird uh, amorphous feeling that, that accompanies this world that we're in these days a lot, where you don't know exactly which are the ones that are breaking. But some of them are clear. One of them is Ascension which has been on a lot of these lists. And the other list that broke this week was Doc NYC, which is probably the most predictive list there is. Tom yeah. Powers, who's a programmer, obviously, for Docs at TIFF, and then he programs Doc NYC as well, very, very deeply embedded in the, in, in the documentary world. And he's seen everything. He knows everything about what's going on. And he is actually throwing his, you know, he throws his cards on the table and says, this is what I think is going to end up being on the Oscar shortlist and he picks 15 films. Now, uh, they don't always match up. I usually it's 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 about 8 of them that end up being on the shortlist and and or 8 to 10 or so. And they are there's usually the winner, but last year my octopus teacher was not the winner because it wasn't well, at any festival. At that point in time, we didn't yeah. really know the octopus effect that was around the corner. But a lot of the the other nominees were there like Yeah, 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 the usual there. standard. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So so the ones that are on the Doc NYC list and the other list and the other thing about the IDA list, they really leaned into uh the most uh arcane uh, selection uh, of, oh. of uh, they they skipped a lot of the big titles that Tom includes on the yeah. Doc NYC list. Well, I mean it's it's a big it's a bigger list too. So and they're trying yeah. they're trying to bring people people's attention to things, and it's valid. Yeah. I'm I'm not saying they're wrong. It's a different but, kind but of process. The, you shouldn't look at their list as a predictive list. You should look at their list as more of a suggestion to watch list. Yeah, so, a viewing list, which honestly exactly. a lot of Academy members will probably they benefit need from, no. I totally need that. So Ascension is one that's coming up everywhere, which I recommend. It's it's a book. It's, it's about China, and it's really quite remarkable. One Tribeca uh, earlier and, this year. Yeah, that was Tribeca. And then um, you've got Convergence um, uh, is on the IDA documentary list. Uh, and 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 uh, no, uh, Ascension is the one that's on both the IDA right. and Convergence is on IDA. Yeah. And That's then a Netflix. You have, and then you have um, the Fire Day keeps showing up in yeah. both places. That's that's one Flea, that's a real word of, of mouth. Flea is a sort of no brainer in the same breath. Uh, uh, you that's know, the other one that everybody's you know looking yeah. at. And um, and and we see uh, Summer of Soul 
which is clearly the front runner at this point. But then um, not on the IDA list, but very much on the uh, on the uh, Doc NYC list are the are the big movies like The Rescue from Nat Geo, the the uh, Becoming Cousteau from Nat Geo, the more crowd pleasing, if you like, titles. Don't forget about introducing Selma Blair. Absolutely. I did a Q&A with her and the director this week. I highly recommend that movie. It's it's a it could have been one of those uh, sort of uh, disease porn kind of things. It's about her struggle with MS and it shows you uh, it shows the horrible effects of the disease on her. She's very willing to present herself, but she's also a charming actress and personality who absolutely leans into the camera while she's going through all this horror. um, so but it's, it is it's, that, it's that is very, sort of the, you know, I hate to say it. It's an entertaining movie. As yeah, well. I mean, but that is, I think, heart, that one, heart, heart, heartwarming. I think Selma Blair and perhaps also Roadrunner, the, the film about Anthony Bourdain, are sort of those those two slots where you have the kind of high profile subject documentaries, which are also crowd pleasers, and the subjects themselves end up being a big selling point. I mean, obviously, Roadrunner also a very good movie. I haven't seen introducing Selma Blair, but the the person. Roadrunner was a big in- inclusion yeah. because it's been left off of the other lists, right. and uh, it should it it, it it is it is definitely um, Tom Powers feels very strongly that whatever uh, conflict occurred with more uh, Anthony. Uh, Bourdain's voice being they, I think. No, but that's not it. He a, said that I, was overblown. You and- know why it is overblown? Because there are so many other ways that you could poke holes in what the documentary boundaries are in other kinds of films that we're looking at. Case in point, one that I was actually surprised not to see on the IDA list, but I was glad to see on the Doc NYC list is Procession, the Robert Greene film about fantastic you know, film victims of, of Catholic sexual very abuse, intense reenact, right drama therapy. But that that's a film that's explicitly about sort of teasing the boundaries of between fiction and nonfiction as a part so it's of it's taking it's taking in a way content. you're you're making the comparison to to what Morgan Neville did exactly he's taking I think he's it's taking, relevant. yeah he's taking the recreation idea to an entirely different level which so Robert they're Green literally has been doing. recreating what happened to them in Robert, fiction form Robert Greene has been doing that and I think that the most exciting documentaries that we're talking about here that really have a shot are all doing that to various degrees. I mean, Flea is a movie that I think completely pushes the boundaries of what a traditional doc is in very exciting kinds of ways that absolutely reported. Summer of Soul is perhaps more conventional in the sense that it's an archival doc, but it's, you know, archival doc. It's an archival doc we've never quite seen before. So it's kind of like a, you know, Quest- activism in a way. I also to, did to a resurrect. Q&A with, with Questlove and what was remarkable about what he did was he used his extraordinary knowledge and and access to the to the world to 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 really inform in a in a historical way uh, the music that that was performed that day. So it's not just the um, extraordinary concert. It's also the world around it. And he did it with rhythm and insight and and a kind of instinct for what was going to play that he brought from his um, VJing skills, and it really worked. So the the other music doc of note on the doc, doc NYC shortlist is Velvet Underground, which is interesting which to think about. also left off of the IDA yeah. list. But, and, but it's interesting to think about. It's also the, innovative. The, but it's also, yeah, and I, and I think also worth looking at, you know, in a year where we have two music docs, they're both playing really well, 
do they both have a shot? Because they also both have pretty big companies behind them. I mean, Summer of Soul is Searchlight, Ergo Disney, and then Velvet Underground is Apple. And they're both pretty innovative in terms of their approaches, as you say. And I think it'll be fascinating to talk about, you know, is there room for both of them at, at the at the big Well, there's game? a ton of music documentaries that aren't on any of these lists. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is that the doc branch of the Academy tends to overlook music yeah. docs because they don't take them that seriously. And there's one music doc that's getting a lot of push um, which is the Billie Eilish uh, documentary from R.J. Cutler. And there's also Sparks Brothers um, from uh, Edgar Wright. And I would say that what's happening is that Summer of Soul and Velvet Underground, with their extraordinarily good reviews, are getting more attention um, than the others um, because there's such good filmmakers behind them. But but Sparks Brothers is a great movie. I, I think Edgar well, you, did a you, great job with it. It's a good It's a good one to bring up in this context, too, because as it happens, we realized today so that Sparks Brothers dropped on Netflix. We're not exactly sure how. It's a focused feature, so then why not put it on Peacock? Although timing works out nicely because it I all depends on what the deal was. was. The original yeah. deals are still but, still playing out, but it gives everybody a chance to check it out. It's yeah, a lot it's of not fun. A, it, I mean, the thing is with that movie too is my first reaction to it was, why the hell is it two hours and twenty minutes long? But it's a really engaging overview of that band, and their music is so fun in a way that is unexpected if you're not a big Sparks fan. So what I appreciated about it is that it kind of makes the case for being a deep dive and I bet it'll be really popular on Netflix. So is that this year's My Octopus Teacher doesn't need the doc NYC shortlist to break through the noise? And what could that mean for the other music docs that we're talking about here? It could be a fascinating uh, factor to, to think about. I no, mean, that, that 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 part of what uh, it was fun to to do a Q and A with them because uh, they are so charming. The, and they're the in male the awards brothers, race Russell, in Ron Mail. Yeah, the 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 Sparks so was Edgar, there. of course. He was just coming from his big opening night premiere in L.A. for last night, uh, uh, last night in Soho, but, but which was at the say, Academy Museum. The Sparks, uh, the Sparks brothers. I mean, people think their last names are, are Sparks. It's not. It's the Mail brothers, but they're also in contention for their original song work on Annette. That's right. You know, we talked about that. So there are a couple of different layers of things happening here. It's kind of fascinating. And Billie Eilish is, is more likely to get nominated for her Bond song right. <laughs> than she is for, uh, but it for helps, the R.J. Right? Cutler it, movie. It can't hurt to have her out there fronting for the R.J. Cutler movie and say, by the way, I also did the Bond song. So you see how these things kind of coalesce. They kind of work listen. that way. Yeah. Yeah. I will note, because we, before we move on from Doc NYC shortlist, we, we, we give Tom Pratt Powers a lot of credit is that in our reporting on it, we do note that there was a committee uh, that technically was involved in selecting these films. So, you know, there were three three filmmakers listed, Nadia Halgren, Kimberly Reed, and Hao Wu, who made 76 Days last year. So I'm, I'm curious about... Just know, saying, who had the loudest voice? Yeah, I mean... I, I love I love the there are those in the doc community who think that Tom Powers has altogether too much influence. And I would suggest to everyone that he has exquisite taste. And, uh, you know, if he's bringing uh, the movies out that we need to see uh, and pointing them out, we should uh, respect that. Well, I would also say you don't have to just listen to one person. You can do your own homework. There's tons of doc as as the IDA list makes clear. There are tons of docs worth talking about ahead of the shortlist. It's a pretty wide field if you really get down to it. And I'm I'm hopeful based on this shortlist that even the final 
short, the, the final real award, Academy shortlist will actually have a pretty advanced range of experiences. I mean, to watch, say, Summer of Soul and then Flea and then Procession, those are all so different. So hopefully people will be very engaged by Docs this year, and, and that could lead to some bigger conversations about the other categories. That that's some of the most for. exciting stuff that's out there. Although exactly. we uh, we have been having some fun with the international uh, selection where a lot of the countries finally came in, and we we learned, of course, that, of course, the Sorrentino, Hand of God, was the Italian entry, um, and worst person in the world was the Norwegian entry, and, and uh, Flea was, was the, the Denmark entry, entry you know. Yeah. All, everything that was expected, basically, yeah. business as usual. So, 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 and things are starting to settle on that front, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how they develop. Meanwhile, and lamb, in, lamb is the Iceland oh, yeah. entry. I love lamb. Yeah, no, I, that, that's no a fun pass. one to talk about too. I do think we could have what, with both the international contenders and the dot contenders uh, so, some really fascinating academy reactions. So I can't wait. As much as some people don't like them for those anonymous ballots at the end for people to really talk about those categories because I think it's going to be, you're going to get a, a, a real wide array of reactions. Well, you get, and, I was, in, I was interested to, to, to learn that there was as many as a thousand people participating. I mean, that was reported to me. I, 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 I couldn't get the Academy to confirm that by the way. Um, they're keeping their cards close to the vest, but that's a much, much bigger number than the little tiny group that used to do it at the Academy. You're talking about people opting in, in into LA, the international. Opting into the yeah. International well, well, I mean, think think about it like this, that you have more people watching things on the app at home, so it's a lot easier to do that, at least in theory. It feel, probably people are more comfortable with that idea. They want to watch stuff, and uh, it's a fun challenge. I mean, it gives you some sort of curatorial guidance. I spoke to Edgar Wright about it, actually, for a, separately when I was talking to him for a story this week about Last Night in Soho. He said he did it last year watched like 45 movies. Obviously he's a real cinephile, but he said it was a really cool experience because he wouldn't have watched those movies otherwise. Right. And I feel like a lot of people probably are, are feeling that of like, I just need to watch stuff. So here's a list of stuff you can watch and it's probably some of it pretty good. So I, I'd love the idea that that could shake up the, the short list as well. But there uh, but are let's people talk about going to movie theaters too, right? I know. Like, well, let, like let's Dune. talk about that. Dune, so Dune actually was not was not a huge flop, despite some people for months assuming that that was the, the natural endpoint for this thing. It was successful enough to get part two greenlit. We don't know how it did on HBO Max, but I assume it did pretty well there too. So and, forty-one uh, million dollars for the opening weekend domestic, one hundred eighty-two because it's been in theaters overseas for a few weeks now. One hundred eighty-two overseas for a total of two hundred twenty-three worldwide, which is very good news. It's the biggest um, opening for Warner Brothers of of uh, you know since the pandemic started. And it's also it, it it just opened in China, came in second there. So it's really uh, encouraging. Now the news from Warner Brothers about Dune Two. Look, uh, we we really knew that the script was already ready. They were poised. They were just waiting. They were just waiting for the well, confirmation of the opening right. and wanted to get credit for having a good opening. Yeah, but I mean, if the thing was a huge dud, they would not have gone forward. I mean, it was a gamble. I, that that. That scenario, huge dud, wasn't going to happen. And one of the things that happened over the weekend was that all that the records that were said that they did, they did incredibly well on IMAX screens and like 22 percent of all screens were IMAX. 
which is very unusual because there aren't that many IMAX The selling point of the movie has been centered on the theatrical experience in a way that nothing else was except Tenet, which was not successful because Tenet didn't satisfy a lot of people. It was it was an original concept, but a concept people weren't necessarily excited about on its own terms. Whereas here you had a franchise in waiting, sort of in a way an existing franchise, but also one that had stars people were excited about and the marketing that really sold it as a theatrical experience. But, you know, I've, I've talked to people who've watched it on the small screen. I don't think small screen makes sense for this movie, but sounds like some people have been okay with that. So well, we had some debate about that. We have been talking <laughs> I put up about a, it. a tweet We're about furious. it and, and I got, I got slammed. Oh, I don't know. I there are a lot of people who really think uh, what I learned from the reaction to my tweet, which was that I basically was mad at a friend of mine for shutting down his, his TV because he got after an hour and a half of Dune, you know, cause he didn't feel like watching it anymore. And I was just using that. The reason I was upset about it was that that was an indication to me of how easy it is for someone who hasn't invested in going out to a theater or paying for pay-per-view, how easy it is to just not give a shit about it and, and turn it off, which you can't do if you're sitting in a theater. You're there because you paid for it and you wanted it. It was destination viewing. It was a choice that you made. And that's why I feel so strongly that with a big scale, extraordinarily expensive, beautiful movie like Dune, Warner Brothers and other studios should recognize that pay-per-view is the option not uh streaming well i mean i'm you're not gonna get any argument from me on this but i am fascinated by how much of a talking point this is for people they feel strongly about their freedom accessibility has become you know this real uh talking point in a way that i I don't think we've seen before which is fascinating because it's, it's because people have been trained through the streaming boom, essentially, to feel like they just have a right to these things. A year ago, you would not have had Dune on streaming. And right now, there are big movies in release that are not available on streaming, like James Bond, for example. Thank you. And Eternals, which is opening this week. So nobody's really making a big stir about that. So Dune, I mean, to me, Dune actually probably would have done even better without the day and day. I don't know. They how would much have done much better. better. They would have but, made I mean, a lot of money, but they aren't they caring about that more. right now because they're playing yeah. to Wall Street, as Villeneuve said himself. Yeah, yeah. But I will be curious to see, I mean, when Dune Part 2 comes around, you know, it's, it's going to be a different world. It's not going to be the same world that we were in two years ago. Uh, and it's not going to be the world we're in right now. Does it become again a play to up HBO Max subscribers? Because obviously Denis Villeneuve is very publicly lambasted Warner Brothers for putting this movie out day and date. He's I believe that they should have made now, an exception but... for this movie, and the reason for that is that this movie is special. You know, it's not just another movie. I'm I'm guilty of I'll, I'll, true confession. I watched Many Saints of Newark. Uh, I turned it on. And I eventually turned it off. Kill me, you know, for being, you know, what's the difference between Many Saints of Newark and Dune? There's a difference. There really is. Well, the difference is, is that Many Saints of Newark is a small scale drama and Dune is an audiovisual experience. I, I didn't love it, but I, I, that that's just a fact. They just present different kinds of experiences. It's like 
In many sense of New York is provocative in the way that it's violent, just as The Sopranos was. So if you're in the mood for for extreme violence, uh, the way it's presented in that movie, you're, you know, go with God. But in that particular night that I was watching it, I, I put it on pause. Well, I'm curious what you make of Halloween Kills, which has probably the biggest body count of any of them. And is also- I loved the last one, but from everything I'm hearing, I can skip this one. Well, not if you're going to invest. I can in tolerate violence. It's, it's a, got to be Here's the point. If you're at home in your living room at midnight and you're feeling a little sleepy and tired and something happens where you just go, Ugh, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, that's your option. Well, but you shouldn't just have that. that option with a movie that's, like yeah. Dune that, in first that's release. Not just about violence. I think it's it's everything. It's that. I mean, this is the Memoria conversation again, too. Right. It's like something that is intentionally designed to have a very deliberate pace to it. You know, a lot of, a lot of film, the whole slow cinema thing, slow cinema watch those does not in a theater. work at home. It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It's like someone sending you a photo, a blurry photo of a painting or something being like, you'll get the idea. I mean, it's just, it's, it's doesn't track, but that's not a conversation that makes sense when you're worried about bottom line, I guess. So, but I hope but they the do. Good news, the good news was that French dispatch, went out in fewer theaters, like 50 theaters, than most movies have been going out lately. That actually qualifies at this stage as a platform release. And guess what? It did the best in LA. It did the best in New York. The Angelica broke records with it. Best number yep. since the beginning of the pandemic. I talked to and, people who went at the Angelica. They, they said it was amazing to watch that movie with a crowd. And they really exactly. liked it. It was fantastic. The so the, French, the response was better than it was at any of the festivals, too. We, just I'm not surprised because the fans showed up. People who love yep. Wes Anderson showed up on the opening weekend and they're going much broader in the second weekend which i think is too bad but they at least got the highest per screen average of any movie since the beginning of the pandemic you know so i think it beat uh i forgot what the other winner was i think it beat uh black spider or what i mean black widow or whatever anyway so you have you have uh evidence which I hope the other distributors pay attention to, that with the right move. We were talking about this at, at IndieWire. It, you, you know, Wes Anderson is a thing unto himself. You know, he's an auteur uh, on a certain level with a pull. With a, he's like Tarantino or something. There's an audience, an auteur audience for him. But um, the, I would like to see other distributors opening their movies in smaller breaks so that they can get this large per screen average and build word of mouth. Yeah, I mean the the French Dispatch situation is also a reminder that there there is a very specific market for specialty releases. It goes back to the platform conversation that we've had before. It, are platform releases still viable in this current situation? Well, for certain kinds of movies that play in the big cities, they probably are. Yeah, and the audience is there, and people are now comfortable going to theaters. Maybe not as many as as in 2019, but it's more. And the movies have to be the selling point. It can't just be whatever. But if you have a Wes Anderson or somebody of that caliber, then sure, why not? So what's exciting now is that we have a bunch of movies before the end of the year that we can tease because we know we're starting to hear murmurs of screenings being set up. But the idea that, you know, something like Licorice Pizza will be another hopeful reminder that people show up for movies like that or the Guillermo del Toro movie. Another Absolutely. I mean, and don't look up. I'm looking forward wrong. to that. That's going to be on yeah. Netflix, but I'm looking forward to it yeah. anyway. I hope to and, see it in a theater And tick, tick, anyway. boom, right? And These tick, are the big boom. titles coming. 
Yep. Tick, tick, boom, yep. opens AFI Fest. So wait, we'll see that was, there. wait a minute. That was West Side Story Erasure. We can't forget about West Side Story. Oh, we just got notification I mean, that they're going to screen that. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up. And I think that'll be, I mean, it's a Spielberg movie. Spielberg, no, nobody has been more of a theatrical purist. I mean, he's sort of the OG of being theatrical, being a theatrical purist before there was a Nolan or whatever. So hopefully this movie makes a case for that as well. So I guess we should touch also on one other major news item from the film world of the past week, which is the tragic shooting on the set of Rust. Um, we don't have all the facts still, but we've certainly got a lot already. And I think what to me has been really interesting to follow is how quickly the community of craftspeople have sort of assembled or mobilized around this and talked about ways forward, banning guns on set all of this kind of stuff and you know whatever comes out of you know there's a lot of big open questions how liable is alec baldwin as a producer on this project but it's it's pretty obvious that the armorer did not do a job that the armorer was supposed to do and that perhaps on a set like this that seemed to be moving very quickly at the expense of you know uh people on set being comfortable with that pace. they had very uh, very lax you know, safety protocols and that, the ad was a part of that as as well so so the two people who were really supposed to be front and center on making sure that that gun was safe somehow uh, it wasn't. Um, it's a terrible tragedy, but it's also about the climate that existed on that set, the production climate, the producers. There were inexperienced producers running that show who were just uh, worried about the bottom line. They, this happens in Hollywood so often. And those of us who have friends who've worked in independent productions, um, you know, there's a there was a good story out there from an armorer who turned down the job. He just had warning bells going off right and left that he didn't want to take that job. And and so when when you're cutting corners and you're hiring cheap people who aren't that experienced, that armor was 24 years old and had a, this is literally her second job as an armorer. You know, when you do that, you you are putting people at risk. And when you have people driving for an hour uh, between Albuquerque and and the set, you know, who are already working long hours, they wouldn't put yep. people up in in the area near the location. They, this is it. Just all adds up. Up. And it's it's something that that people in Hollywood have to really, really the IA is all over it. I know. But there's people there's it's, it's, it's a kind of mentality that doesn't check in with the people who run the different departments to figure out how much things yeah. actually are going to cost and 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 doesn't do their homework in terms of being practical and realistic about what they can accomplish. And then when they get to the location and they're actually shooting, they're like cutting everything and and cheaping out and making yeah. it unsafe. And I also think there's a bigger picture in all of this, even though I know we've had tragic set, uh, onset accidents similar to this in the past and in different eras, that there's something about the kind of content machine that we're all experiencing now where it's like, there's such a high demand that movies can be profitable VOD releases if you get a name-ish actor like Alec Baldwin involved and everyone's just rushing to crank stuff out. This movie would probably be you know profitable on you know, iTunes or whatever. So they just got to get it out the door and it's done. It's already a movie as soon as somebody gets the cast involved and that there's some sort of trickle down effect on some level to the kind of strain of, of sets where it's like craftspeople are being forced to do jobs under conditions that are just not 
the best way to do well, it's work a, that needs it's to be done. A, it's a really bad sign if your whole camera crew is like walking off off the set, or that the producer, it turns out, in an in a on another show was was literally getting rid of people who wanted to unionize the show. You know, yep. these are very bad uh, working conditions, uh, demoralizing yeah. at best, and people need to understand that. Even with gu- even without guns, you know the the woman who 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 got killed on a train track, you know, on a on a on a set, you know, there there there's all sorts of ways that movie sets are dangerous, and and uh, and 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 safety has to be of paramount concern. Yeah, well, this will be a fascinating story to continue to follow as we see how the uh, the actual fallout of the investigation continues, who's actually determined to be liable and so forth. But we'll have to come back to it as, as different uh, updates come along. So in the meantime, so next week, uh, I guess we'll get some more updates. There, there, there's, as we said, a lot more left to see. And we have, you know, AFI Fest around the corner. So I'm sure we'll be tracking a lot on that front. But, uh, and I hope you're hanging in there. We, we're juggling a lot of interviews that people will see soon enough uh, as, as award season accelerates. So much more to come on that to. Yeah. All righty. See you soon. Bye-bye.